The English Civil War officially started in 1642, and the road to war was a terrifying and chaotic time of political intrigue, mob violence, and widespread paranoia. You're listening to the American History Podcast with Sarah Tinsalvola, a show exploring who we are and why by tracing American history from the 17th century to the 20th. If you've been following this series from the beginning, you have a vague idea of the events of Charles I's reign up until 1639. He and his parliament had immediately gotten off on the wrong foot when he married a Catholic and parliament denied him a reliable lifetime income through tonnage and poundage, a threat to royal authority that no king in English history had ever faced before. Then he had gotten disastrously involved in a couple of military entanglements, primarily at Cadiz and La Rochelle in France, solidifying his poor reputation in the public's eyes. The relationship between King and Parliament failed to improve even after the death of his hated advisor, the Duke of Buckingham, and after he accepted the Petition of Right, which set out specific public liberties that the King could not infringe upon. And so, after calling and disbanding two previous Parliaments, the King disbanded a third Parliament in 1629, and ruled on his own for 11 years, funding his court through dubiously legal and wildly unpopular methods, including ship money, a medieval tax traditionally raised from coastal towns specifically for coastal defense, but which now extended through the country to fund the king's court. During this period, known as the personal rule, his policies and methods appalled Puritans, especially his appointment of the extremely anti-Puritan William Laud as the new Archbishop of Canterbury, and his increasing lenience toward Catholics. Over the course of this time, a huge number of Puritans emigrated, while a small group of Puritans in England tried to found a colony on Providence Island. In 1639, his attempts to push high church religious reforms in Scotland led to the outbreak of war there, known as the Bishop's Wars, and the financial strain of these wars forced him to call a parliament, and that's about the last thing we've covered. But let's resume our discussion at the Bishop's Wars, because that is the event that caused Charles I's reign to fall apart. The Bishop's Wars resulted from the King's attempt to push the English Book of Common Prayer on Scotland. He was working to establish an identical church in Scotland as existed in England, and history hasn't been kind to this decision, but though it may have been badly timed, it actually wasn't totally unreasonable. The goal of the Stuarts from James I down to Queen Anne, who actually accomplished it, had been to unite England and Scotland into one country. For that to happen, by the standards of early 17th century Europe, something was going to have to change in terms of religion. 
either Scotland was going to have to adjust to conform to England's system of religion, or England was going to have to adjust to conform to that of Scotland. That's just the way things worked back then, because having one church per state was absolutely the norm. Some level of conflict on this issue was going to be hard to avoid if the kingdoms were to be united. The main question was just timing and strategy, but that brings us to a second issue. The other factor that the king didn't know about at the time, but which he soon grew to suspect, and which there is in fact some evidence for, is that the Scottish Presbyterians and English Puritan leaders were secretly allied with each other. We don't have any existing documentation about their discussions or anything, and in fact, I reiterate that we can't be 100% sure that it did happen, but it's pretty likely that it did, and apart from the fact that it was treason, it makes perfect sense that it would. The two groups shared very similar political and religious goals and ideas, and by collaborating, they could create an almost no-win situation for the king. If the Covenanters ended up at war with the king, there was virtually no way that he would get the money to fund a successful military campaign. So they could demand anything they wanted with no real incentive to compromise. And in fact, a Scottish war would be perfect for English Puritans because the financial strain would most likely force the king to call a parliament. It's true that King Charles didn't have to push to the point of war when he encountered the type of opposition he found in Scotland, and he did get some advice telling him not to, but it's important to realize that he also didn't know what was going on. He thought that he was engaged in a normal conflict, with all the diplomacy, posturing, negotiating, and fighting that went along with that. Instead, he was playing on an unwinnably uneven playing field. 2020 hindsight says that this was easily the biggest mistake he ever made. But whether that was clear in the moment, I'm not prepared to say. And whether or not his actions were reasonable doesn't change what happened next. Strapped for cash and losing a war, the king was, in fact, forced to call a parliament. And when that parliament convened, it was largely united in opposition to him. Of the 60 or so candidates that the king endorsed, only 14 were elected. Local preachers had encouraged people to vote for the Puritan candidates, and the king was widely unpopular anyway. The most tangible of the king's policies on the local level had been the levying of ship money, and that instantly made him unpopular. Most campaigns focused on local issues, but they occurred in an atmosphere that was very much hostile to the king, and the outcome of the election reflected this. When Parliament convened, the king's Lord Keeper, John Finch, 
opened with a speech saying that the king was at war with the Scots, and in fact, the Scots were invading England and asking for help from the French to do so. As such, the king obviously needed money to fight them. But again, the king didn't realize that his core group of opponents, led by the Providence Island Company members, would actually prefer a Covenanter victory to a royal one. Not only did they agree politically and theologically with the Scots, defeat would put the king in an even weaker position against his parliament. So they too had nothing to lose by refusing to compromise. They demanded that the king hear their grievances before they gave him any money. Parliament was definitely united against the king. At this point in time, after 11 years of unpopular policies, future royalists and future parliamentarians were saying things that were pretty much identical. Even the MPs who didn't actively want a Scottish victory were willing to risk it to have their voices heard. But a difference did soon become apparent. Providence Island Company members had taken their seats with a level of unity, the likes of which the world had never seen the likes of which. And the king soon started to suspect something. He had started with a firm and unpopular stance demanding the money to, you know, prevent an invasion of England, but he had actually started to try to find common ground on which to negotiate with Parliament, and Parliament, led by the Providence Island Company members whose behavior he had already begun to suspect at the trial of John Hamden, well, they weren't even budging. Suspicious and furious, the king dissolved Parliament yet again and ordered the homes of John Pym, Henry Vane, and others to be searched for evidence that they were colluding with the Covenanters, and he briefly arrested some of them. But it was no use. Without parliamentary help, he lost the war, lost all his remaining money, and was now in the position of having to pay the Scots money that he didn't have. Although the king would try everything in his power to avoid calling another parliament, he had no choice. He tried levying ship money again, but this time only one man in all of London agreed to pay it. He tried getting loans from other countries, but to no avail. And meanwhile, popular tension was starting to increase across England to the point that in Devon, a Catholic soldier was murdered in the streets for refusing to go to an Anglican church. And that is when the Second Bishop's War started, and the Covenanters resumed their advance on northern England. And by this time, the atmosphere was so hostile to the king that the English actually entertained the invaders, and news of his defeat was openly cheered in London. And, as part of the terms of peace, the Covenanters demanded thousands of pounds to pay their army and they urged the king to call a parliament to get it. And English Puritans joined in this call for a new parliament, 
In fact, the Earl of Warwick was even threatening to convene a parliament without the king's permission, something which had last been threatened in the reign of Henry III. And though the king continued to try to find a way around that, there simply wasn't one. If he didn't give the Covenanters their promised money, and the English wouldn't support him in a war, it was quite possible that the Covenanters would continue their invasion of England toward London with no English army opposing them. So he truly had no choice, and in November of 1639, he called yet another parliament. The Providence Island Company was still holding meetings at this time, and it wasn't taking notes at any of these meetings. And at this point, they and their allies, like Henry Vane and the Earl of Pembroke, started to become known as the Junto. And I do want to take a minute to just, well, reflect on this, because we have seen time and again in this podcast how English politics affected American colonization, but now the situation is reversed, and we're seeing a situation in which American colonization has had a profound effect on English politics by helping to unite a key group of dissidents in a way that no one understood or expected. And this is where Tom Filing's observation that the Providence Island Company could be called the first English political party is really important. In an alternate world in which England hadn't gotten particularly involved in American colonization, English history would have been unrecognizably different. And there's a possibility that there would have been no English Civil War at all. But back on topic, when the new parliament convened, its rhetoric was even more intense than it had previously been rumors and hyperbole circulated, and everyone was clearly on edge. And again, Pym and his allies, the Junto, led the charge against the king. And in particular, Pym gave a speech, blaming the king's advisor, the Earl of Strafford, for pretty much everything that had gone wrong in the country. And MPs started taking his side on that. Strafford was actually afraid to go to London at this point, but the king persuaded him to, promising his protection and desperate to get the evidence that he believed Strafford had, which would show that Pym and his allies had colluded with the Covenanters, which would have been treason. And it's quite possible that Pym and his allies also believed that Strafford had that evidence, and indeed, Strafford may have had that evidence. Strafford wasn't the only one of the king's advisors who was being attacked at this point, though. Secretary of State Francis Windebank was accused of fomenting a Catholic rebellion, and rumors had begun to circulate that the king himself had intended to use an Irish army against his English subjects. But Strafford was the most important, because by impeaching him, they could condemn the policies of the king himself and a parliamentary committee started preparing to impeach him for treason. The negotiations between King and Parliament continued on a number of issues, but again, 
and more than ever, the king had no negotiating power. He needed Parliament, and Parliament didn't need him. He couldn't dismiss Parliament without getting the money to pay the Scots, and Parliament was starting to make threats, including killing Strafford, that the king wanted desperately to avoid. And so, Parliament won concession after concession from the king. He allowed Parliament to take an unprecedented role in government affairs, with 65 new committees largely organized by John Pym. One of them essentially became an alternative court of law. Parliament was more and more in control of the country, and as they got more power, they made more demands, and the king had no choice but to capitulate. So, Parliament now impeached Laud too, and it voted to give the Scottish army 300,000 pounds, and it sent more bishops to the tower, some of whom would spend the next 17 years in prison. They questioned all the judges who had ever ruled in the king's favor, and they told customs officials to stop putting money into the royal exchequer without parliamentary permission, thereby depriving the king of all his remaining income. Then they pushed the king to sign the Triennial Act, guaranteeing parliaments every three years, and they drew up a list of people that they wanted to sit on the king's privy council. And meanwhile, especially in London, anti-king agitation started to look more and more like mob rule, and things got scary enough that people like Windebank and Finch and other prominent courtiers started to flee the country. Now, at this point, parliamentary unity did start to break down a little bit. As Pym's faction pushed further and further, some people started to turn away from their cause. They had pushed further, harder, and more successfully than anyone could have even dreamed a year before, and this was farther than many people were comfortable with. Looking at the mobs outside the Palace of Westminster and then looking at the mobs inside, moderates started to side with the king. Yes, they had opposed ship money and other personal rule policies, but now Parliament was taking over judicial and executive roles, thoroughly gutting the king's power to the point that they wanted to be the people who chose his privy councillors and advocated the total abolition of the English bishops. And when the bishops were abolished, they intended to replace them with clerics appointed by, you may have guessed it, Parliament. So, more and more people were starting to have second thoughts. By now, as the impeachment of Strafford had progressed, the king was trying to negotiate primarily for Strafford's life and the continued presence of the bishops in the House of Lords. He was even willing to capitulate on the issue of the Privy Council if he were given the other two things. But in what was by now a familiar exchange, Parliament demanded to be given the positions before they would commit to the king's demands, and the king wanted them to commit first. 
The Privy Council was a trivial matter for Parliament, but Strafford and the bishops were everything for the king. So negotiations fell apart and Strafford's trial began. And the trial was a public spectacle. Hordes of people came, bringing bizarre amounts of food and drinks to enjoy while they watched. Impeachment for treason had been what Strafford had feared when he returned to London, but when the 28 articles against him were read, he actually smiled. They were simply too weak to prove. And this was actually the first time that things had looked good for the king in well over a year. In theory, this could change everything. It could deflate parliamentary momentum, give the king a much-needed victory, and show the king's side to be reasonable. It might even allow Strafford to show that Pym and his cohorts were traitors. And it would at least take off the table one of Parliament's major negotiating tactics. And the trial went about as well as they could have hoped. Strafford presented himself as the articulate, quick-witted, and calm defender against an opposition which was unsophisticated, overly belligerent, and domineering without substance. And the lords in particular were swayed by Strafford's testimony. Commons was dismayed when it realized that the Lords might actually let Strafford off, and at one point a miscommunication combined with the hostility between the two houses led both sides to put their hands to their swords. While both Strafford and the King watched the chaos in utter amusement, victory looked assured. But Strafford's impeachment was the standoff to end all standoffs. And Commons, totally on Pym and Company's side, couldn't let the Lords thwart the goals that it was so very close to achieving. So Henry Vane found a quote in his father's notes in which Strafford had said, You have an army in Ireland that you can employ here to reduce this kingdom. And he gave that to Pym. Strafford had meant an English army in Ireland that he could use against the Scots, but they reinterpreted the quote to mean an Irish army that he could use against the English. And using this, the Commons drew up a bill of attainder, condemning Strafford to death for treason. A bill of attainder was a medieval process by which a person could be legislatively sentenced for a crime. All they had to do was get the commons to sign it, the lords to sign it, and the king to sign it. And Strafford would die as a traitor, and the king would be politically impotent, and political victory would be theirs. Getting the commons to sign it was easy. The other two would take a little work. And while they prepared... The mobs, which have been an increasing part of the background of this story, started to really define the atmosphere of London. Rumors started to circulate that Henrietta Maria was encouraging the French to invade England, which is somewhat ironic because actually the Scottish Covenanters had tried to make that happen. And the mobs were truly convinced that if Strafford died, 
the country would have peace, prosperity, freedom, liberty, unity, happiness, and all good things. The king could theoretically have stopped Strafford's impeachment by dissolving Parliament. And though he would have to reconvene one, he could save Strafford in the way that he had once saved the Duke of Buckingham. But now mobs of thousands were surrounding Westminster, and to do something like that would actually be somewhat dangerous. Commons passed the Bill of Attainder with no problems. Only 59 of several hundred members voted against it. That said, the people who did vote against it were somewhat interesting, and their treatment was very much calculated to intimidate the lords, who were at that point leaning against condemning Strafford. George Digby had been one of the people who had led the effort to impeach Strafford when the impeachment was via a fair trial, but when faced with an attainder, he reversed his position and led the doomed attempt to save Strafford. He had done everything in his legitimate power to get Strafford convicted of treason, but now that Parliament was resorting to a bill of attainder in an active attempt to circumvent what he considered a fair trial, Digby led the opposition, and he gave one of my favorite speeches ever, and a speech which I will post to the website and social media, to voice his disapproval of the proceedings. In his speech, he said he still considered Strafford dangerous, but that they hadn't produced any evidence that justified the attainder. Just a copy of some secretary's notes reiterating an accusation about an incident that no one could really remember. He said that he'd accused him with a free heart, prosecuted him earnestly, and that if his guilt had been proven, he would have condemned him with innocence. But he said that being a prosecutor and being a judge were two different things. They needed to figure out a different way to protect the state from Strafford, rather than choosing a way which endangered the state even more by setting such a horrifying precedent. He asked people to set aside their passions and question whether they were doing justice or murder, realizing that if this was murder, it was the worst sort of murder imaginable, and that they would be accountable to God for their actions. And then he concluded, I do before God discharge myself to the utmost of my power and with a clear conscience wash my hands of this man's blood by this solemn protestation that my vote goes not to the taking of the Earl of Strafford's life. After the attainder passed in the commons, Parliament declared printing copies of Digby's speech to be slanderous, petitioned the king not to confer any honor or employment on Digby, and then a list was printed and posted around Westminster containing the names of the people who had voted not to execute Strafford, with the heading, These are Strafordians, betrayers of their country, and hinting that they should perish with Strafford. 
For the purposes of American history, the two most interesting names on the list were Frederick Cornwallis, cousin of the Maryland colonist, and Richard Lee, a member of the family from which the Lees of Virginia came. The mobs harassed these people, and Digby in particular was assaulted in the streets, accused of apostasy, and called Strafford's false son. The attacks only stopped when someone illegally printed the speech and circulated it, and after he was physically attacked within the house, the king elevated him to the House of Lords for his own safety. And meanwhile, people were stopping the carriages of the lords, demanding to know how they intended to vote on the issue. At the same time, the king publicly announced that he would not sign the bill. He said he'd be willing to sign a bill that impeached Strafford for a misdemeanor, but not one that would result in execution. Commons described this move as an unparalleled breach of its privilege because it happened before Parliament had made its decision. Rumors of plots and counterplots were circulating everywhere, and just enough proved true, most notably the army plot to break Strafford out of the tower, to lend credibility to the others. And when the matter reached the Lord's Oliver St. John, who had made only brief remarks in the Commons, gave a three-hour speech pretty much listing every argument that the Lords could use to justify voting for the attainder. The attainder, he said, was a good thing because it let Parliament decide questionable cases by personal conscience. Strafford had tried to create tyranny in England, and he had tried to create a tyranny so bad that people would rise up against the king, so he had essentially done the equivalent of giving the king a poisoned drink while telling him it was cordial. And no, this isn't a last resort because the trial was going to fail. We just think this is better and more appropriate. And even if it is wrong, why should Strafford benefit from the law when he himself had been a source of arbitrary power? And by the time the Lords voted, a mob of several thousand was surrounding the tower to prevent any further attempts to break Strafford out, and another one was gathered around Westminster, screaming for Strafford's execution, saying that if they couldn't have his life, they'd have the king's instead. And the lords had seen the lists posted and the public harassing of dissenters after the very successful vote in the Commons, so what would they do if it failed in the Lords? And plus, the king himself had publicly announced that he would save Strafford anyway. If he would live anyway, why bring the retribution on themselves? So one by one, the Lords who didn't want to vote for the attainder stopped coming, and then the bishops stopped coming until the majority of the people left were in favor of condemning him and the bill passed. It's noteworthy here that Lord Baltimore's father-in-law and benefactor, the Earl of Arundel, actually did stay and actively vote against the attainder, something which was particularly risky given his open Catholicism. 
and after the lords passed the bill, they joined with the commons in marching it to the king, while an estimated 12,000 people waited outside the king's palace waiting for him to sign it. The king said he would bring his response on Monday morning, which already angered the crowd, and by this point even his advisors were urging him to sign it. They said if he didn't, the mob might swarm the palace and capture them, king and queen included, and the queen, who had always had an adversarial relationship with Strafford anyway, urged Charles to sign it and protect his family. And Strafford himself may have sent the king a note at this point, telling him to do what he needed to do for the good of the country. And Charles capitulated. Yet another parliamentary victory. And when Pym heard this, he said, He's given us the head of Strafford, then he will refuse us nothing. The next day, the king sent his heir, the future Charles II, to Parliament to ask that Strafford's sentence be reduced to life in prison, with the understanding that he'd be out of politics either way, and Parliament refused. Then he asked for the execution to be delayed by just one day. And again they refused. So Strafford was marched to the Tower on May 12, 1641. And I've actually written out a pair of blog posts about his last moments and execution speeches, if you're into that sort of thing. As he spoke, he asked the crowd to consider whether the beginnings of a people's happiness should be written in letters of blood. And then he spent about half an hour praying and asking those around him to pray for his wife and children, after which he put his head on the block and was beheaded. The king's inability to oppose Parliament had now been clearly demonstrated. They had made him do something that he had publicly declared he wouldn't do, and they had given him nothing in return. And they continued to force concessions. They passed a bill allowing Parliament to remain in session until it consented to its own dissolution, voted themselves a new subsidy and poll tax, disbanded the Star Chamber, declared ship money illegal, reinforced all statutes against Catholics, and got the king to agree to make the Earl of Essex, a parliamentary leader, his Lord Chamberlain. They also warned towns, cities, and counties around England to be prepared for potential Catholic uprisings. Things were in free fall for the king. But they were looking amazing for Parliament. And in response to news from home, the people of New England gave a day of thanksgiving for all that Parliament had achieved. The only thing happening in the king's favor at this point was that more and more people were turning away from Pym's leadership. Outraged by just how far Parliament had gone and just how much farther it intended to go. The populace now found themselves taxed more than they'd actually been taxed in the personal rule. And the country was a terrifying mess. The next few months would be characterized by the same sort of mob rule that had become the norm. 
to call back to the Virginia Company episodes, one of the many incidents actually happened in the Mermaid Tavern, the old Cyrenical Haunt, where the king's forces had a number of apprentices arrested and detained, until a swarm of people stormed the tavern and released them. It was just lawless, and Parliament's support, both within Parliament and among the general population, was falling away. But then the Catholic Irish rebelled. And despite the fact that stories of the rebellion were grossly exaggerated, it was a real event with a significant amount of real bloodshed. And it was an event that needed to be stopped. And this raised the question of who should have the actual right to raise a military, the king or parliament. And the central document in this final push for parliamentary authority was John Pym's Grand Remonstrance, a document which detailed essentially every grievance against the king over the course of his reign. It didn't blame him directly, but it positioned Parliament, especially the Commons, as the true protector of England against the king's wicked counsellors. And it detailed a list of concessions that it wanted from the king to enable it to continue in this role. It was a sign of how far Parliament's prestige had fallen, that it only passed by 11 votes even in the House of Commons, and that Parliament voted not to publish the document, which was a key part of the reason that Pym had written it. It was in the debates over the Grand Remonstrance that the Royalist Party was first well-defined and visible, led by Viscount Falkland and Edward Hyde, the future Earl of Clarendon. It passed in the Lords, too, but the king delayed signing it, and when he did, Pym's faction printed the petition against Parliament's wishes and circulated it to raise public support. The king wrote his response, refusing to sign, but in moderate, conciliatory tones, which further deflated parliamentary momentum. The event which finalized the split between King and Parliament to the extent that it needed finalization at all, and which gave Parliament its last burst of support, came in early January of 1642, when the King ordered the Attorney General to indict and impeach five MPs for treason. John Pym, John Hamden, Denzel Hollis, Arthur Hazelrig, and William Strode plus Lord Mandeville, the future Earl of Manchester. He still believed that they had encouraged the Scots to invade England, and he hadn't been able to stop one thing that Parliament had ever pushed. And now they wanted control of the military, and he couldn't dissolve them. And rumor had it that they were also preparing to impeach his wife, Henrietta Maria, for alleged involvement in Catholic conspiracies, including the Irish Rebellion. But the king had good reason to be afraid. But he blundered, 
the king's pursuit of the five MPs culminated in his actually walking into the commons at the head of a group of soldiers and sitting in the speaker's chair, something no king had ever done before. The members had already escaped by the time he'd arrived, though, and when he demanded to know where they were, the Speaker of the House refused to tell him. He left Parliament, yet again defeated and humiliated, while MPs shouted, Privilege! Privilege! It was the final disastrous blow to the King's cause, and soon he left for York. While he was en route to York, a parliamentary delegation led by the Earl of Pembroke met him and presented him with a list of grievances, to which he ended up replying, essentially, Everything you've said is lies, and I have given you everything, and you have given me nothing, so what do you want now? And Pembroke said he wanted Charles to give Parliament power over the army. To which the king responded, By God, not for an hour. You have asked that of me in this that was never asked of a king. But it didn't matter. By March, Parliament had passed the Militia Ordinance, which gave it control of the militia. And soon it was recruiting train bands and using a forced loan to fill its treasury. It appointed Warwick as the Navy Admiral, and Warwick's fleet took over numerous Royalist ships. And by this point, the two sides were just organizing and preparing for war, recruiting their soldiers and gathering their weapons. And at this point, when war was looking more and more likely, the people started to become truly desperate for peace. But... By this point, it was too late. The situation had been pushed past the point of no return. And this time, it was Parliament's turn to make a blunder, when it declared that anyone who opposed Parliament was a delinquent whose property could be confiscated. Most of the people who had tried hardest to stay out of the conflict and remain neutral and just unaffected actually thought that Parliament was seriously in the wrong, so when faced with the loss of property for their sympathies, they joined the king's army in droves, hoping to ensure his victory. And this specific ordinance would actually later be particularly meaningful to American history because it would prompt a wave of migration. And speaking of American history... On July 5th, as the king was busy preparing for war, he sent a letter to Virginia. Still reeling from George Sands' attempt to reconstitute the Virginia Company, Virginians had sent the king a letter saying that Sands had misunderstood his instructions and saying that the Virginia Company had been a disaster and that they wanted to remain a crown colony. Desperately. And in response to this, the king replied, Trusty and well-beloved, we greet you well. Your acknowledgments of our grace, bounty, and favor toward you, and your so earnest desire to continue under our immediate protection, is very acceptable to us. 
we had not before the least intention to consent to the introduction of any company over that our colony, and so we are by it much confirmed in our resolution and this approbation of your petition, we have thought fit to transport you under our royal signet, given at our court of York, the 5th of July, 1642. And Virginia melted when it received this letter. The letter illustrated every reason that Virginia supported the king, and it solidified the colony's feelings of loyalty and affection toward him. But a month after he sent that letter, King Charles I raised his standard at Nottingham, declaring that he was officially at war. The king's army versus that of Parliament, which was led by the Earl of Essex. And two months later came the first real battle of the conflict at Edge Hill. It was horrifying. It was bloody. It was the first experience that most Englishmen had in battle. And it had ended in only the slimmest of royalist victories. England was now at war, and it would remain so for the next three years. And that is the briefest meaningful summary that I can give of the outbreak of the English Civil War. If you want another summary with a different perspective and emphasis, there's obviously a series on the conflict in Mike Duncan's Revolutions. And if you want a book-length account of the conflict, I would highly recommend Peter Ackroyd's Rebellion, the History of England from James I to the Glorious Revolution, which is one of my favorite books in any genre and also available as an audiobook. For Americans, the war brought a unique kind of uncertainty. People lived for news from home, but they were weeks away from England by ship. By the time they heard about anything that had happened, it was long over, and the information they got was undetailed, and to a certain extent, it was unreliable. Unless they returned to England, they could do nothing to help, and at any given moment, they had no idea of what was happening. For all they knew, the war could have ended, their loved ones could have been killed, or anything. All they could do was wait and pray. New England celebrated the role that they had played in the outbreak of war and parliamentary ascendancy, and each Puritan colony instituted regular days of fasting and prayer to support Parliament's efforts, whether at specific times of the month or in response to news from England. They abandoned the guns they'd installed on Castle Island in 1635 when the king had threatened to appoint a royal governor. They started preparing pamphlets to publish in England, and treatises and sermons and private letters of advice, most notably New England's First Fruits, which discussed the enormous success of the New England Way. And a huge number of people returned to England to fight for Parliament, including 12% of its university-educated people and 7 out of 9 people in Harvard's first class. There, they overwhelmingly took leadership positions, 60 becoming ministers, at least 4 MPs, 
10 parliamentary officers, many fighting in Cromwell's Ironsides, and of course, Thomas Weld and Hugh Peters, who would take extremely prominent roles, as well as Thomas Venner. But though New England leadership was unanimously ready to support Parliament, and though most of the population agreed with that, in Plymouth, Connecticut, and even Massachusetts, there were people who weren't totally comfortable with the idea of being at war with the king. They were committed to reformation, and Laud was their ultimate villain, and they had even cheered Strafford's execution, but mutiny against a ruler was something else entirely. Puritan or not, there was still a tradition of divine right in England, and the Bible did seem to say that you weren't supposed to violently rebel against your rulers. And another effect of the war, that recognizing their newfound vulnerability, the Puritan colonies of New England finally formed the New England United Colonies, or the New England Confederation. There's no surviving documentation of colonists' reaction to the outbreak of war in most American colonies, but ultimately it seems that in 1642, pretty much everyone went about business as usual. All of the colonies were weak enough, vulnerable enough, and unable enough to actually help either side that the best thing they could do was try to live normally, at least until everything panned out. They traded with English ships, regardless of whether their crews supported king or parliament, and they dealt with local issues as best they could. The war consumed their thoughts, and they were desperate to know as much as possible about what was going on. But there was corn to be grown, cattle to be fed, tobacco to be traded, and local issues to be dealt with. That's not to say that people didn't display their loyalty, because they did. One St. Kitts colonist refused to drink a toast to the royalist Thomas Warner as lieutenant general of the Caribbean Islands, saying that he acknowledged no general but the Earl of Essex, and meanwhile Barbados Governor Philip Bell and Virginia resident Philip Bennett reached out to Massachusetts and New Haven to recruit ministers for their respective colonies, and New England happily obliged, sending each colony multiple ministers. In Virginia, they were John Knowles, William Thompson, and Thomas James, who reached Jamestown in early 1643, presented letters of introduction from Winthrop to Berkeley, and began preaching and recruiting converts, especially around Virginia's already Puritan-leaning northern area. Every Lord Proprietor and Joint Stock Company involved in America had their sympathies. Carlisle supported the King, Pembroke Parliament. The Summers Island Company was the only one that was really split in its loyalties, but its strongest personalities, like Warwick, were for Parliament. The only one who remained neutral was Lord Baltimore, who kept his head very, very low 
after the Irish Rebellion. He sent an Anglican royalist, the Earl of Ormond, to be his proxy in the Irish Parliament, and he joined most of his Catholic peers in withdrawing from the House of Lords. You can kind of see why. Catholics saw when the war broke out just how scary it was for them. Some, evidently pushed by the French king, actually fought for Parliament in the hopes of lessening anti-Catholic hysteria and achieving religious freedom. But current evidence suggests, and logic would dictate, that the vast majority fought for the king, and certainly the Earl of Arundel, Baltimore's father-in-law, who had helped him so much, was a steadfastly devoted royalist. And Baltimore probably shared his sympathies. But Baltimore knew that Maryland's patent came from a royal grant which had been deeply unpopular with Parliament. If Parliament won, staying neutral would at least give him a little bit of bargaining power against royalist Virginia. And whatever he did from England could inflame conflicts within Maryland itself between the Puritan and Catholic factions. He just needed to attract as little attention to himself as possible, and as little attention to his colony as possible, and hope that everything blew over. To further diffuse the situation, he sent commissions to Maryland's governor and council, giving the governor complete and total power to rule in his name. And in Maryland, Governor Calvert also worked hard to lessen any potential internal tensions. He instituted a system of direct democracy, even requiring non-permanent residents to take part. The assembly lessened multiple remaining policies which were unpopular with the colony's Puritans, including the requirement that colonists get permission before leaving Maryland. This was a fairly standard colonial policy, but it was one which was unpopular with Kent Islanders, who fundamentally still considered themselves Virginians. Calvert actually supported requiring permission, but agreed to eliminate the requirement, except when a colonist was fleeing a debt or threatening the security of the colony. Maryland had always trod on eggshells when it came to sectarian disputes, but now they were more careful than ever. All colonies were more vulnerable with the war raging, but Maryland was a powder keg. But on the whole, though the war now consumed the thoughts of Americans, like I said, it hadn't exactly come to America yet and it wouldn't start to strongly affect Americans until parliamentary victory started to look like a serious possibility in late 1643. But before that, there were volatile local issues that got mixed up with issues and rhetoric related to the war in England, and those are what we'll discuss next week.